Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for your word. Your word is good. It's sweet to our souls, Lord. You didn't leave us to just wander around on this earth wondering what your will was. You gave us divine revelation. And you gave us the Holy Spirit to illuminate to our minds. And that's what I pray for today, Lord. Illumine the word of God to our minds that we might understand and believe what you have for us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but there's something that I find I need to tell myself quite often. Sometimes when things are not going the way I would like them to go, when the people in my life are not doing the things I would want them to do, and when the circumstances in my life are not unfolding in the way I would like them to unfold, and I'm all frustrated and upset, if perhaps the Lord gives me a few moments of clear-headed thinking, sometimes I tell myself this, Hey, buddy, you need to resign as head of the universe. Maybe you thought you were elected to that role, but no, somebody else already serves in that role, and they serve quite capably, thank you. Remember, the story, Steve, that you're in here on this earth is not really the story of you. You're in the story, but it's not your story, and you are not the star. It's God's story, and the starring role has already been given to somebody else. So take a deep breath, step back, and let it go. Let God be God. Let God direct the affairs of this world as he sees fit. Step back and let him do his work. Am I the only one who needs a pep talk like that every now and then? Resign as head of the universe. (laughs) Let God be God. I think that we all need to be reminded from time to time that we find ourselves in the story of God. Welcome to the story of God. That's the story that you and I are in. History is his story, isn't it? It's God's story. It's God's unfolding drama of redemption and recreation. And I want to remind you of the storyline of the grand story of God. And it's this. The author of the story is preparing for himself a people, isn't he? The community of the redeemed. The people who will love him and love displaying his glory far and wide, both now in this life and ultimately in an eternal kingdom that is not yet here. He's accomplishing this through the redeeming work of the star of the story, his beloved son, Jesus Christ. The son's pretty amazing, isn't he? Yep. <laughs> Jesus, he's the star of the story. He stunned the audience when he actually entered into his own creation about 2,000 years ago, with very little fanfare, by the way. He came to earth, he clothed himself in human skin. Then he proceeded to live that perfect, beautiful life that none of us can live, completely obeying God's law in every respect. And then in a bizarre plot twist, he was actually betrayed by a friend, then executed like a common criminal, hung to die on an old wooden cross. This too was part of the storyline, the storyline of grace. For he actually died in the place of fallen humanity. He absorbed in his own body, the punishment that we deserve because of our many sins. He took our place. He died, yes, but then the star of the story was raised from the grave in a new and glorious body. 
a glorious body that was a prototype of the bodies that he's going to one day give to all of his people. The Son then ascended back into heaven. He sent his Spirit to indwell his redeemed people down here on the earth so that they could live lives of confidence and faith in Christ. And so they would have boldness to share this gospel message all around the world until all of God's people have bowed their knee to him. And at a yet future point in history, known only to the Father, the Son will triumphantly call all of his people to rise and to meet him in the air. We will dwell with him in a final and ultimate kingdom, reign together with him over a newly created heaven and earth. And we will reign from a stunning capital city called the New Jerusalem. And our glorious God will be marveled at by angels and enjoyed forever by his people as we carry out whatever tasks he has in mind for us throughout all of eternity. And so the story has no end. It will continue to unfold chapter by chapter by chapter forever and ever and ever. This is the grand story of God, and we're in it. We get to be in the story. And so today, as we finish up this chapter that we've been studying, 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to be given a glimpse, a foretaste of our future inheritance as God's redeemed people, and an encouragement for living our lives here and now. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You can grab that study outline out of your worship folder, and we're going to see that Paul is building on the theme that he has been talking about, the future resurrection of God's people. Notice how he begins this section by talking about a requirement for living in that future kingdom one day. Verse 50 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says this, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. As we saw last weekend, a new and different kind of body is going to be required for existence in the realm of the upcoming kingdom of God. Our current bodies are not fit for that kind of existence with their propensity to Get hurt, get injured, wear out, break down, stop working, die and decay. Our current bodies, as good as they are, and we're grateful for them, are not fit for existence in an eternal kingdom. They need renovation, or better yet, recreation. That's what they need. He says, flesh and blood, at least the kind of flesh and blood that we have now, cannot inherit the kingdom life that is coming. That which is perishable, that which is subject to decay and decomposing, cannot survive in that new dimension that will exist forever. Something needs to change. And notice that he uses this word inherit twice. The heavenly kingdom, he says, is inherited. You see that? Not earned, not worked for, not even built by our own efforts, but received as an inheritance, like a son or a daughter might receive an inheritance from a wealthy parent or grandparent. It's received as a gift by faith, something that God has prepared for his people. And so in talking about this, I think Paul anticipates, again, a question from his readers. How is this going to happen, and when exactly, Paul, will it happen? And in response to that, he reveals what he calls a mystery. And we're going to look at this mystery. Now, in the Bible, a mystery doesn't have anything to do with 
Agatha Christie or Sherlock Holmes or the Hardy Boys or anything like that, uh, a movie or a thriller novel, but a biblical mystery is this. It's a truth that was previously unknown and hidden to previous generations that gets disclosed and revealed in the New Testament. So something the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Noah, Moses, they didn't know about this, but in the New Testament it is revealed. And you can actually do a word search on that, ver- on that word mystery and find a number of mysteries revealed in the New Testament. But the one that Paul unpacks here is found in verse 51. Behold, he writes, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Now, I was walking through another church once, and I saw that verse on a plaque in the church nursery. <laughs> kind of a baby motto. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. (laughs) Last night, it took the people last night about 20 seconds to get that. And I'd I'd moved on, and all of a sudden, somebody bellowed out with this laugh. And it's like, okay, I'm glad you got it. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. The the language here is the language of putting on a garment, putting on clothing. We need an an, an outer garment, an overclothing of a new body. That's what he's saying. And so here's this mystery revealed in the New Testament. The sudden, split-second transformation of all believers living and dead. The sudden split-second transformation of every single true Christian, living and dead. And there's some intriguing pieces to this mystery. First, notice he says, we shall not all sleep. Now, we know that sleep is a euphemism used in the New Testament for dying, for death, right? We shall not all sleep. Did you know there's going to be a generation that will not taste death? And I hope it's my generation. Don't you? I hope and pray it's our generation. One Christian man wrote this, I don't fear death, I just don't want to be there when it happens. (laughs) And I second that emotion. God is revealing here that there will be a privileged generation of believers that will not die. Will not die. More on that in a minute. (laughs) We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Now, this generation of believers who will not taste death, once they heard that, they might thought, well, what about those resurrection bodies? Will we get those resurrection bodies too, like our dead loved ones who knew Christ? And the answer is yes, we shall all be changed, Paul writes. Those who are alive on the earth when the resurrection happens will receive their new resurrection body for sure. And it will happen in a moment In the twinkling of an eye, someone estimated that as one-sixth of a nanosecond. So this is not like this long, gradual process over time where you get morphed, you know, uh, into your new body. No, it happens like that, instantaneously, the twinkling of an eye. At the last trumpet, that's interesting. So this whole transformation is going to be announced by a loud trumpet blast. Now... People who understand the calendar of the Jewish festivals and feasts, 
There are many scholars who believe that there's a hint, there's a clue here as to when Jesus is going to return and the resurrection will happen because there is such a thing as the Feast of Trumpets. And so much of Jesus' life and death and resurrection tracked with or was in sync with the Jewish calendar that there are those who think, you know what, there's a hint here. The trumpet's going to sound. That's a reference to the Feast of Trumpets, which announces the Jewish New Year, which is called Rosh Hashanah which in our calendar is late September. And so there are those who believe that, that Jesus will come in or around some Rosh Hashanah season. We don't know that for sure. There are some who believe it. Of course, the Bible says no one knows the day or the hour when this will happen. But it's kind of intriguing, isn't it? A loud trumpet blast will announce this resurrection There's so much here. We can only kind of graze the surface today. By the way, this resurrection is one of a series of seven resurrections that are mentioned in Scripture. Maybe you knew this. Maybe this is new. Some of them have already happened. Others are still to come. Now, I'm talking about bodily resurrections where people who are raised will not die again. There were other resurrections, like Lazarus, for example, who was raised from the dead, but he retained his natural body and he died again. You know that Lazarus died again, right? But we're talking about resurrections where those who are raised will have their new glorified transformed bodies and will never die again. And there are at least seven of them mentioned in the scriptures. And the first was Jesus. He was the first fruits. We learned that term last week. That means there's more to come. The first of many. Jesus was raised from the dead 2,000 years ago with a new glorified body. Second, there was a resurrection. This might be new to you. At that same time when Jesus was raised, there were certain Old Testament saints who were also raised from the dead. Did you know that? If you didn't, you should read Matthew twenty-seven fifty-two. It's this wild account of graves opening in Israel and some, it doesn't appear to be all, some Old Testament saints being raised from the dead and walking around in Israel. So you're talking to someone, he says, yeah, I died about 800 years ago. <laughs> and you're like, whoa, that happened. That was the second in this series of resurrections. The third is the one we're talking about, the resurrection of church-age believers. The fourth is yet to happen, the resurrection of the two witnesses. You can read about that in Revelation chapter 11. During the great tribulation period, it says that God is going to raise two of his Old Testament saints to be his heralds, his prophets, his witnesses to Israel during the tribulation period, and many believe it will be Moses and Elijah raised again. Number five is the resurrection of martyred tribulation saints, again, during that same period. Did you know that for someone to become a believer in Jesus during that tribulation period, it will cost them their very life? And it says that those who were beheaded... For the sake of the Lamb who did not receive the mark of the beast on their right hand or on their forehead, who were killed for their faith, are raised. Revelation 6, verses 9 through 11. So that's the fifth in this series. The sixth is the resurrection of Old Testament saints. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Esther, Ruth. Spoken of in Daniel 12 and in other places, there's some debate among scholars as to when in the sequence this one actually happens. And then the final and seventh resurrection is the resurrection of all of the unsaved dead. And they are raised to be judged. It says the books will be opened and they will be judged for their sins. 
Revelation chapter 20. So seven resurrections. Now here we're talking about number three, the resurrection of the church age believers who have died, like my grandparents, like my wife's father, like many precious believers in this congregation who over the years have passed on. One of the most hope-giving promises of the gospel is that true believers who have died will be raised to life again one day in bodily form. We'll be able to recognize each other. We'll know each other, it says, even as we are known. And we can praise God for that. That's the promise for the believers who have died. What about that generation of believers who will still be alive when this happens? How will they receive their resurrection bodies? How's that going to come about? That terminal generation who's still living when the resurrection of the dead happens. Well, I am among those who believe in a yet future event that many Bible scholars have called the rapture. I do believe in the rapture. It's only alluded to here in 1 Corinthians 15. It's only just hinted at because that's not the primary focus of Paul in this chapter. But it is the primary focus that he addresses in another passage, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I want to look at this for a few moments. This is a passage that I've read with great joy at dozens and dozens of gravesite services over the years because it's a great hope. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning at verse 13, it reads like this. And again, Paul wrote this. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who have died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. They're going to rise. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. Paul says, Jesus told me this. That we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. A shout. I love the fact that it says the Lord himself. He's not going to send some ambassador, some envoy, some third-rate representative. No, Jesus will call his people to himself personally. With the voice of an archangel, it says, and with the sound of the... There it is again, this trumpet blast, the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first... So they'll precede us who are alive, hopefully us who are alive. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up. Ah, snatched away. The word Bible scholars use is raptured. That's where this doctrine finds its source. That We will be caught up together with them. With who? The dead in Christ who have been raised to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words, which is what I'm trying to do today. What a great and glorious promise. When you take this passage together with 1 Corinthians 15, you see that Jesus will one day call for his people with a victorious shout. Come, rise, my people. Think about when he called Lazarus. Lazarus, come forth. If he hadn't said Lazarus, if he just said, come forth, that would have been interesting because graves and tombs all over the place. People would have been coming out. What? It's our time? Okay. 
He has that kind of power to breathe life into dead bodies. And so he will shout. I want to hear his voice, don't you? I want to hear that shout. The lion of the tribe of Judah shouting, calling his people to come out of the graves. A loud trumpet blast and the bodies of dead believers everywhere will be raised, transformed in that moment, reunited with their spirits and caught up to meet Jesus in the air and all the believers who are alive on the earth will also be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air and their bodies will also be transformed in that same instant like this into those resurrection bodies that we talked about last week. It'll all happen in an instant in the twinkling of an eye. Yes, it says the dead will precede us, but just by that much and there will be a grand and glorious reunion in the sky with Jesus and our loved ones who have passed on who are in Christ this is the mystery that is being revealed to us in the new testament and it is amazing this is an incredible chapter of the story of god rapture resurrection and transformation of all of god's people And then think about this. All of this that we've just talked about, it really showcases the power of God over death, doesn't it? Now, death is our enemy. Death was not in the original plan. When God created things, he did not design death into it, but sin came into the picture and sin tainted humanity and it brought a curse upon the earth. And so death is our enemy, but... The resurrection and rapture of Christians will demonstrate the death-defeating, grave-opening power of God. You know, the grave could not contain Jesus, couldn't hold him. And the grave will not hold your loved ones who knew Jesus Christ. And the grave will not be able to contain you. If you should pass on one day, it will not be able to restrain you. Its cords will not be able to hold you and keep you. Why? Because of the power of God who can raise the dead. And so this chapter of the grand story of God showcases, magnifies the power of God over death. And, and as you, you read Paul's writings here, you can tell that his heart is starting to well up with pride in his God. And great joy in God's, what I like to call his tomb-busting power. So much so that he starts to mock death. He starts to taunt the enemy of death. You know, in the NFL, taunting is bad. But when it comes to spiritual reality, we can taunt death. Listen to Paul's writing, verse 54. So when the perishable puts on the imperishable, the new body, and when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written... Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? These are quotes from the Old Testament that Paul had memorized. And it's like he's, he's taunting death. He's exulting in God's victory over death. And he's saying, hey, death, is that all you got? Is that it? When God raised Jesus from the dead, you got your butt kicked, didn't you? You thought you had won, you'd put Jesus in the grave, but God turned the tables on you. He's taunting death. He's saying, you know what, death? God used you. <laughs> he used you. 
Death became the means by which the people of God are redeemed. I love this. You actually became the means by which God redeems his people for all time. Salvation came through death. Yeah, you swallowed Jesus up in the grave, all right, but then God's power swallowed you up when he raised Jesus from the dead. He totally swallowed you. He consumed you, death. You got nothing left. And one day, your defeat is going to be even more humiliating because he's going to call all of his people out of the graves. They'll all be raised. What do you have to say to that death? Where is your victory now? Where is your stinger now? It's glorious mockery. Righteous taunting. And you know the redeemed can do that. (laughs) We can taunt death. Sure, our bodies can be racked with pain now in this life. Some of you are in chronic pain. You get up every morning and you're suffering, you're in pain, or your loved ones, perhaps, are in pain, suffering every day. We're tormented at times by these bodies that are cursed by sin and falling apart and decaying in this fallen world. Death and loss are part of our existence in this life. And on occasion, God in his mercy grants us a glimpse, a foretaste of that day when he grants a divine healing here and now. And that's a glorious thing, isn't it? In fact, just in the last several weeks, two healings have been reported to us, people here in our congregation. As others prayed for them, they were instantaneously healed of their infirmity. And we say, praise God for that. Praise God for that. And you know what it is? It's a glimpse. It's a foretaste. It's the first fruits that more is to come. And it'll be full and final and complete and permanent one day when we all have our glorified bodies and we're with the Lord in heaven and there's no more sickness or disease or illness or injury, no more death or loss or sorrow or decay or any of that. That's a beautiful promise of the gospel. And so we can taunt death. (laughs) We can taunt death. A victory celebration is in store for God's people, and it should rightfully begin here and now in this life. And Paul really starts it. Verse 56, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, he's starting a victory celebration. He acknowledges that death stings, and death does sting, doesn't it? How many of you have lost a loved one in the last couple of years. Can I see your hands? Many, many, many of us have. And death stings. It it hurts. It's sorrowful. There's a hole there where that person was. But you know what? The real, lasting, eternal sting of death comes only for those whose sin never got pardoned in this life. It says the sting of death is sin. Yeah. Yeah. Unforgiven sin leads to an eternal death. That's the real stinger. But for those whose sins have been forgiven through faith in Christ's sacrifice, that stinger is removed. That scorpion stinger is removed. And dying actually becomes a doorway into the presence of God. And then it says, the power of sin is in the law. Well, sure it is. (laughs) The commands of God's law are great. 
They're great for defining right and wrong, aren't they? God's law tells us what is acceptable behavior and what isn't. But the law is horrible for giving us any desire or ability to keep it. It wasn't designed to do that. The law reveals what is sinful to us. It also, the Bible says, incites and provokes sin in us. Just tell a human being they can't do something and they'll want to do it. But the law offers no remedy, provides no desire, and imparts no spiritual power to obey it, to keep the law. But thanks be to God, Paul says, because what the law could not do for us, Jesus did for us. You say, how so? Well, what, the law is all summed up in two commandments, right? What are they? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And you know what? Jesus kept those two perfectly his whole life. We don't. He did. And his righteousness, when you put your faith in Christ, gets applied to you as if you live the life that he lived. He fulfilled the law for us, and then he took the lawbreaker's penalty on himself. The penalty for lawbreakers, which we deserve, he took on himself. He became a curse for us, the curse of the lawbreaker, so that we could be blessed in his grace. That would be a point where you probably ought to say amen or glory to God or something like that. You see, Jesus' victory is given to us. That's what he says. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory. He beat death so we could beat death. He crushed sin so we could crush sin. His victory is our victory. We're sided with the victor in this whole story. Praise God. Because of that, we can live a certain way here and now. I love how he finishes up this chapter. It kind of builds to this crescendo where he brings it home to the people of God. Verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and immovable, rock-like, like Gibraltar. Be steadfast, solid as a rock, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This verse is so precious to me. It got me through a time in my life when I was feeling a pressure to perform and a deep, dark discouragement unlike anything I had ever felt up to that point. And I remember the day I hopped on my motorcycle and just drove and found some park somewhere and just started walking around this park. And the only thing I could think to say was this verse, which I'd memorized as a kid in the Wana Clubs. I'd memorized it in the King James Version. And that's all I could say. Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, Steve, for you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And I said it, and I said it, I must have said it 500 times just walking around that park. Steve, your labor is not in vain in the Lord because of what Jesus has done, because God raised Jesus from the dead, because his victory is your victory, because this life is not all there is, because Jesus purchased for you salvation 
through his blood on the cross, because he guarantees your future resurrection one day, because he has secured for you a body, a glorious resurrection body that will last all of eternity, because your mortal enemy, death, has been soundly defeated by Jesus Christ. Be steadfast, immovable, be a rock, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Tim Keller said this, God solved our biggest problem. God eliminated our worst nagging fear and anything else we face in this life is like a flea bite in comparison to that. Because of that, therefore, he says, because of all that, know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Got me through that day. I needed 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight. It says your labor is not in vain. What's the labor he's talking about here? It doesn't really specify it here, but we can think back through 1 Corinthians. We can think about the whole New Testament, and we know what he meant. Our labor in the Lord is, is to stay faithful even when it gets hard, to stand up for Jesus Christ even when it makes you unpopular to spread the gospel of Jesus, to serve Christ's people. It's to sacrificially give of yourself and, yes, even your income because Christ's love compels you to do that. It's to spread his love to your neighbors and around the world through sacrificial acts of generosity and service offered in his name. And the promise here is that because of Christ's victory over death, none of it is in vain. It is bearing fruit. It is making a difference. And one day it will become so apparent to everybody. Your labor is not in vain. Whatever you're doing for Christ in this life is not empty. It's not pointless. It's not futile. Do you understand this? I got an email this week, or maybe it was two weeks ago, from a guy. He said, hey, I just wanted to write you. I was a New life attendee. A number of years ago, he said, I was kind of a sporadic attendee. I just came every now and then, and then I ended up moving away. And he said, in my life after Columbus, he said, I, I somehow got ensnared in pornography. And I started to view pornography online. And he said, before I knew it, I was just feeding this, you know, insatiable appetite in me. And I was caught. I was addicted to pornography. And he said, you know, just... A few months ago, I got to thinking about my time at New Life and what I experienced there. And I decided to go online and I looked up your website and I saw that, that all the messages, all the sermons are archived online and I could go back and look at messages. And he said, I did that and I found the series that you did back in 07 on breaking free from sexual addiction and freedom in Christ. And he said, I listened to it. And he said, you need to know that the last two months I've been totally free from my porn addiction. And he said, I want you to know, he said, in in effect, I want you to know, Pastor Steve, if you ever doubt if God's using you, if the word of God is bearing any fruit in people's lives, you need to think of at least one guy out there who listened to the word of God online and God used the word to change his life. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And yours isn't either. You say, I'm sowing seeds in my children's life. I I feel like I'm sowing good seeds and I'm not seeing any fruit. And I want to say to you, 
Be patient, be steadfast, immovable. Your labor is not in vain. It will take root. It will bear fruit. Believe that. Believe that. Whatever you do for Jesus Christ, however you serve Christ, it is not empty, it is not in vain, not in this life. It will bear fruit. And in the life to come, there is a great reward for faithful servants of Christ. Amen? Amen. This is the guarantee of the gospel. As I finished preparing this message, for some reason, many of your faces began to be on the screen of my mind. I thought of many of you, individuals who love Christ, who worship Jesus, who serve Christ. You're not perfect. You wouldn't claim to be perfect, but you do love Christ and you do offer service to him. You expend energy for him. You serve Christ's people. You shepherd them. You meet with people. You mentor them. You you try to disciple them. You pour your life out for others. You teach them. You bless other people with gifts, anonymous gifts. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You need to know that. And because this is fresh on my mind, those of you who sponsor precious Ugandan children on the other side of the world, and you give your $35 a month, and you know that that's being used to, to give them food and shelter and clothing and Christian education. I was there. I hugged them. You need to know your labor is not in vain in the Lord. It's making a difference in that little community of Makono Village. People are coming to the Savior because of your investment in children over there. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Many of you are serving Christ with all of your hearts. And I just want you to know, I praise God for you. I really do. And it tells me that you know in your heart that Jesus is the star of the story. And that you're glad to yield the center stage of your life to the star, to Jesus Christ. And you're content to simply be a member of the supporting cast in the great grand story of God. I love that about you. You know, there's a picture given in the Bible of a powerful way that you and I can give testimony to the fact that this hope that we've been talking about has gotten personal for you, that it's become personal. Jesus gave us a way to demonstrate publicly that we know that he called us to believe in him and that we responded to that in repentance, turning from our sin and embracing Christ trusting his sacrifice alone for our forgiveness, redemption, salvation, and hope of eternal life. I'm talking about the picture that we call believer's baptism. It's a beautiful thing. I mentioned last weekend that we would give you an opportunity this weekend to be baptized, and we want to make good on that promise. And so I'm going to ask you to take the little blue card right now out of your worship folder, and I'll explain it in a moment, but just hold on to it and um, take a look at this video that describes in more detail what's involved in being baptized.